Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, September 21st. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. We start the show today with a panel talking about the Emmys. I'll be honest with you, most of the time when there's a panel talking about the Emmys, it's not how we start the show. But when you're the Canadian arts show and last night is the biggest night in Canadian television history with Schitt's Creek winning a record number of Emmys, my God, you start the show with a panel. So Kathleen Newman-Bermang and John Samuel are here to talk a little bit about why the show did so well, which I think there's a lot of celebrating of the show doing well. But they're a little critical, and I, I mean critical not in a way that they, they are um, – it is a criticism of the show itself, but they are critical of the moment. They're going to analyze the moment, and they have this really interesting point about how Schitt's Creek's success is ultimately embolic of our desire for niceness in our culture right now. Very interesting conversation coming up about Schitt's Creek's success. Also just a celebration of Canadian television and a celebration of some of the best TV out there right now. After that, Raphael Lozano-Hemmer, who is one of our finest artists, gives you the experience of being in a museum sort of over the radio. And he's a guy whose um, art requires people to participate in it. And how do you make it when people can't come together and participate? After that, Jude Law. Um, who this is one of my favorite kinds of interviews because it's a film about a guy. He's in this new film about a guy who looks towards America for success and then moves to America. He's living in the UK and then you know moves back to the UK after finding success in America. And we say like, doesn't that kind of mirror your life? You know, but what was it like for you to be a successful American movie star and move back to the UK? And he says something like, I never thought about that. And I love when we can kind of catch him in those moments where he didn't think about these things and we can um, get him to say like, oh, interesting. Uh, anyway. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. We're all a little bit bleary-eyed here in the Q offices today because last night a beloved Canadian TV show made TV history at the 72nd Annual Emmy Awards. For the first time in the awards show's history, one single series took home every single award in the comedy categories, and that show is the CBC's Schitt's Creek. Take a listen to this. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This tent's on fire. Okay. We don't... Writers don't get awards? What is this? Um, okay, first of all, I just want to say thank you to my dad for giving me the reins to this show, uh, even though I didn't have any experience in a writer's room, which saying that out loud right now feels like a wild choice on your part, but I am very grateful for it. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Um, thank you to my team, David Westreed, Rupinder Gill, Mike Short, Winter, every single writer that sat in our writer's room and offered up traumatizing, embarrassing, deeply triggering things so that the Rose family could be who they are. That's Canadian actor, writer, and director Daniel Levy making one of his many acceptance speeches last night at the Emmy Awards. Dan alone took home Outstanding Supporting Actor, Outstanding Directing, Outstanding Writing, all of them in the comedy category. The entire show took home a total of nine Emmys. The night kicked off with Catherine O'Hara winning Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. And then just the wins kept coming. Not only was it a landmark night for Canadian television, but it was also the very first Emmys that went completely virtual. Our Q screen panel is here to talk about all of the big night. Kathleen Newman-Bremang is a writer for Refinery29. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Tom. John Sampley is an arts and entertainment writer. Hi, John. Good morning to you, Tom. They, they joined me both over Zoom. So, John, let's start with you. What do you, what do you make of Schitt's Creek taking home nine Emmys? It's certainly an impressive number of Emmys. Uh, it is Frasier level Emmys. Uh, <laughs> more than Frasier, I believe. Um, but yeah, I think the success of Schitt's Creek is interesting. I mean, not only because it's a Canadian show. I mean, do people think of it as a Canadian show when they watch it? I don't really know. But I think the interesting thing about it is it kind of suggests this whole new model of how television television reaches people. You know, we have a Canadian show that was picked up by Pop, which is kind of a small network in the US, which most people found on Netflix. Uh, it's a show that started off with kind of 
thin praise to out and out negative reviews that kind of became beloved as more people discovered it. So yeah, I think it sort of suggests a way in which we're going to sort of see TV shows become popular, which is not kind of these huge successes out of the gate, but things that kind of slowly build steam and an audience by finding that audience through various different means. It's interesting. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, about the fact that like essentially all this stuff is happening towards the end of, of their run, as you say, John. But Kathleen, I'll go to you here. How surprised were you by all these wins? I, mean, I wouldn't say I was surprised. Schitt's Creek is a critical darling. And even though it kind of went through a bumpy uh, start where it did get panned a little in the beginning, by the end, uh, it was a critical darling. It stars two comedy legends. It became very clear early in quarantine that the right people and frankly, everyone was watching this show in this moment. Um, and it's in its last season. So it's a perfect storm of things that the Emmys love. A show beloved by critics, beloved by other actors and celebrities. You heard Elton John say that he loves the show last night. It's got this heavyweight cast in Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. And it's in its final season. And the Emmys loves recognizing shows in their final season. So let's hear a little bit more from The Big Night. Earlier, we heard Daniel Levy uh, with his acceptance speech. Here's Eugene Levy. I also want to thank once again this young man who took our fish-out-of-water story about the Rose family and transformed it into a celebration of inclusivity, a castigation of homophobia, and a declaration of the power of love. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Academy. Thank you. That's Eugene Levy, uh, Daniel's father, the co-star of Schitt's Creek. Um, Daniel also talked about this show being a show about love and acceptance. John, you often see, and I saw this a lot last night, like this is the show we need right now. This is the kind of comedy we need right now. I'm not trying to be cynical here, but like, is that is that why it won? I think that that has something to do with it, Tom. I mean, regardless of the quality of a show or a film or anything, award shows are so much about narratives. Uh, as Kathleen mentioned, so many people got turned on to Shit's Creek recently, you know, during the pandemic. I think it sort of falls within this trend in entertainment we're seeing in film and TV where niceness and altruism are foregrounded. Some people call it nice core. You know, you think of the Paddington movies or the nine films about Fred Rogers that have come out in the past <laughs> few years. I think that, uh, you know, as the world becomes despairing, this idea of entering a sort of alternate world where people are kind and people are nice to each other, uh, it becomes a bomb or a kind of safety blanket. And Schitt's Creek is kind of the, you know, the apotheosis of that style of entertainment. Uh, Kathleen, what do you think? Do you think this is nice core in, uh, in practice? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I kind of balk a little bit at the celebration of the show for inclusivity because um, it is very white. But of course, when we talk about LGBTQ representation and what Daniel did for even just the term, um, um, you know, the his character uh, is polyamorous and like and um, even for that. And for the, him talking about uh, liking the wine, not the label, giving kids this um, language to come up, to come out. Um, I think that he did so much for that. And it is so beautiful to see. Um, so, yeah, it is this thing. The show is very nice. It doesn't. The comedy is not at the expense of anybody else. It, it, and I think that is a huge thing that people are, are drawn to. It did. It did beat a major American productions last night, Kathleen. I mean, like it beat, you know, Modern Family and Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and, and The Good Place. These are big shows. Uh, yeah. And I think that's maybe if you want to be surprised a little, that's where the surprise comes in, because The Good Place was also had its final season. And the Marvelous Miss Maisel had a huge run in the past few Emmys that we've seen. So I think maybe that's where a little bit of surprise came in, especially the fact that it is a sweep. Um, and that was the first time that we've seen that at the Emmys. But again, um, everything that John and I have just said about how popular Schitt's Creek was and what it had has done um, in, in the sense of a narrative and um, how much people gravitated towards this nice story where um, it's in an oasis where homophobia doesn't exist, racism doesn't exist. Mm. Um, I think that that puts it over all of these big, giant shows, American shows. John, John do you think the Schitt's Creek creators are, are wishing they hadn't cut this short after six seasons? Or is that the, is that the reason it won, you think? 
No, I think, again, with the narrative, I think it being the final season probably contributed a bit. But, you know, I think it's always classy to kind of go out while you're hot. You know, nobody turns on, you know, a late season episode of Seinfeld necessarily over a season three or four episode of Seinfeld. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a good thing to sort of end a show before you kind of lose enthusiasm. And, you know, let's face it, like Dan Levy and Annie Murphy and the younger stars on the show, they're getting like major opportunities. So the idea of being kind of tied into Schitt's Creek for the rest of their life, I think would be a bit of a shame. Annie Murphy took home Best Supporting Actress last night. Great news for her. Uh, Kathleen, just talk about the Emmys in general. I mean, there was no real, there was no audience. People were wearing masks. It was largely done over Zoom, over video. Like, how different did it look? And, and what did you think of it? Yeah, it looked very different. I was worried off the top because they did this whole gag with um, the audience it being stock footage. Um, and uh, that gag went on a little bit long and you were kind of confused as to, is the audience actually there or is it not? Um, but most of the nominees were at home virtually, um, you know, Zooming in or video conferencing in. And I was really impressed with the production. It looked pretty great. Uh, You know, you saw Jimmy Kimmel in front of these screens where you could see a lot of the nominees um, and then the winners. Uh, Technically, the speeches went off pretty well without a hitch. There were uh, like a little, uh, some audio issues, but it looked very different. And I think it proved that a a pandemic award show or the pandemies as they were calling it, they can pull it off. And it was actually one of the most enjoy- enjoyable uh, award shows I'd seen in a long time. Yeah, I saw some I saw some comments that were like, uh, can we just do this every year? Do we ever need to go back to a ballroom <laughs> again? John, what did you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, there were obviously hiccups, but those hiccups felt very real, you know. And if nothing else, this award show will very much be a reflection of our time that we'll be able to look back on. And, you know, it's nice to see that Mark Ruffalo just sits at home in a dumpy Ikea couch like the rest of us, you know. <laughs> even, even the Hulk only has a, a, like a $55 couch. I was happy to he, see that as well. He's making Avengers money. And these people from the CBC's Shit's Creek are up at Casa Loma. I mean, what does that tell you? <laughs> it's because Ruffalo keeps breaking him whenever he gets mad. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Let's listen to the host, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, this is him taking a few shots at Canada. I've had enough of this Canadian stuff. The Canadians have won all the Emmys tonight, which, you know, Canada only has like 200 people in it. As of tonight, one out of every four living Canadians has an Emmy award. Schitt's Creek won seven of them. Unfortunately, oh, they fell just short. This is a killer. If they'd won one more Emmy, they would have been able to trade them in for this. A Stanley Cup. But they didn't, so we're going to keep it here for another 27 years. Sorry, Canada. I love Jimmy Kimmel having to point out that it was the Stanley Cup to say, like, hey, see the statue here? It's the Stanley Cup. Jimmy Kimmel speaking to a mostly empty arena in Los Angeles last night at the Emmys. I'm talking to Kathleen Newman-Bermang and John Samley recapping the night. Kathleen, how did Jimmy Kimmel do? Um, I think he did well, all things considered. Um, you know, there were a couple of things that didn't work, like the audience gag I mentioned, uh, the Anthony Anderson bit, which was not necessarily Jimmy's fault. Um, I think his humor actually does well with a laugh track because he is not that overtly laugh out loud funny sometimes, but he handled everything in stride. I actually think that Sterling K. Brown showed up at the end and kind of showed him up and was really funny in his bit. Um, yeah, all in all, Jimmy Himmel did, did fine. Don't, I don't think that's the thing we're going to be talking about when we talk about this Emmy. You don't think the Anthony Anderson bit worked? I don't. I don't. I think that it uh, was a little too... Um, on the nose, let's say. <laughs> uh, John, I, I always love you. Uh, any thoughts you might have on the hosting of the night? Uh, what did you think about Jimmy Kimmel? I always love you too, Tom. Um, <laughs> I actually disagree. I thought Kimmel was great. I mean, I'm not the hugest fan of him, but his humor is so kind of flat and understated and Letterman-esque that he doesn't really need an audience, that like there's always that kind of groan underneath it where he's almost acknowledging how silly and pointless it is that they're even doing this. So like I agree that he doesn't necessarily make like laugh-out-loud crowd-pleaser jokes, but his sort of weathered, can't-believe-I'm-here quality uh, worked for me, given the context. All right, enough about Jimmy Kimmel, enough about Schitt's Creek. Kathleen, your highlights of the Emmys last name. Okay, I got one word for you. Zendaya! (laughs) I was her 
auntie, her big sis last night. I was in that room screaming like her family behind her. She, of course, became the youngest woman ever to win uh, the primetime Emmy for lead actress in a drama for Euphoria. Uh, she became the second black woman to also ever win that award um, next to Viola Davis. Uh, she, I was so, so excited for that because that was a shock. She was up against some heavyweights like Jennifer Aniston, Olivia Coleman, Jodie Cormier, um, Laura Linney, Sandra Oh. Yeah, I was. that was a huge highlight. I also want to shout out Yaya Abdul-Mateen II from Watchmen. All of Watchmen's awards, Regina King, were so, so exciting. Yaya's speech, though, had me in tears. There were some really great highlights. If you were, as Issa Rae says, rooting for everybody black, there were some great highlights last night. John, how about your highlights? Uh, well, I agree with that as far as like the representation. Like I remember just a few years ago, even on panels like this, you know, we're fretting about representation. I mean, obviously the problem isn't solved, but when you look at the awards last night, I mean, look how far we've come in only a few years. I mean, as far as highlights for me, uh, I got to say when Dave Letterman showed up and started making like Oliver North jokes, uh, that really just tickled me. Uh, and yeah, Watchmen, I got to say that like, Watchmen is a show that I started out and I didn't really love it because I was a big fan of the comic. And then I kind of got so into it and was really pleased to see it win. I mean, it's easy to get fatigued with superhero stories, but I think that the show kind of takes these characters Characters and these stories and remixes them in a way that feels so contemporary and relevant and interesting, which I think is like a model for how we can deal with things like franchises and existing intellectual property without just kind of rehashing the same sort of origin stories over and over and over. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Watchmen. So Regina King, who was on the show last week, won for lead actress in Watchmen. Let's listen to a clip from her speech. Got a vote. I would be remiss not to mention that being a part of a show as prescient as Watchmen. Have a voting plan. Go to Ballotpedia.com. Vote up the ballot, please. Go to Ballotpedia.com and find out who are voting in your municipal elections. It is very important. Be a good human. Rest in power, RBG. Thank you. That's Regina King winning for lead actress in Watchmen. Uh, Kathleen, what went through your mind when you heard Regina King's speech? You know, I wasn't surprised. Regina King was wearing a T-shirt honoring Breonna Taylor last night. And I knew that I actually was surprised there weren't more RBG shout outs or references last night. But I knew that Regina, she always does come with a message in her speech. And her show is a show that delves into systemic racism in America. And so I don't think you can accept an award for that performance without talking about voting or without referencing what's going on, uh, especially in, in America right now. And so, uh, yeah, to her, it from coming from her, it feels more genuine and powerful because of the role that she played and because of who Regina King is and who she's been in Hollywood, that, that voice that, that speaks out. I want to just end things off now with the snubs. Shows you think should have gotten awards but didn't get them. Shows that maybe shouldn't didn't get the recognition that they deserved. Kathleen, I'll start with you. Snubs for you? Uh, snub is hard because I actually do think uh, a lot of the people who should have won awards did win awards last night. I am going to say Insecure. I just need to say it because I love that show. And as much as I also love Shit's Creek, two things can be true. Insecure also <laughs> deserves. Um, Matthew McFadden as Tom in Succession lost to Billy Crudup in the morning show. And the morning show is not a good show. So I would say that that... <laughs> is a snub. I've never watched it. I've always, I mean, it's, it's kind of been forced at me as like good TV, but I've, I've still never seen it. That's what I said. I was like, what the hell is the morning show? Whatever Guys, it's on Apple TV Plus. I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't recommend it. it. It is not good. Sounds like it they're spelling good. morning show with a U, if you know what I mean. Uh, John, snubs for you. What do you think? Um, yeah, I agree with Matthew McFadden in Succession. I mean, I'm a big Succession fan. It was nice to see it win uh, the Drama Award, and it was nice for... Um, uh, it was nice for it to win Best Actor as well. But, I mean, you have the thing where half the cast is in competition uh, with one another, so there's bound to be some snubs. But, yeah, Billy Crudup I didn't really get. Uh, although he did play Dr. Manhattan in the movie version of The Watchmen, so maybe there was just some confusion with the ballots. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, It's been a joy to have the both of you. Thanks for staying up late, and thanks for watching the Emmys for us. 
Thank you. I do want to correct myself. I misspoke earlier. I said the Dan's character in Schitt's Creek was uh, uh, polyamorous. He is pansexual. And I was talking to to that. I wanted to correct myself. Oh, thanks for letting us know, Kathleen. We'll edit that later. No one will even know. Uh, (laughs) Kathleen Newman-Bermang is a writer for Refinery29. And John Semley is an arts and entertainment writer. You're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. Aside from Canada's huge night at the Emmys last night, here are some other stories we're following for you today. Many artists are mourning the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died on Friday. Actor Felicity Jones played her in the 2018 biopic On the Basis of Sex. In a statement, Felicity Jones said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave us hope, a public figure who stood for integrity and justice, a responsibility she did not wear lightly. Comedian Kate McKinnon is also paying tribute. She's known for playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Saturday Night Live. Kate McKinnon called her a robed crusader and a real-life superhero. Also, when she wasn't reading legal briefs, Justice Ginsburg was a huge fan of opera. She attended shows frequently. Dozens of opera singers are posting backstage photos with her online. One singer, Christine Gerke, wrote on Instagram, I would say, may her memory be a blessing, but everything about her always has been. She will always be a blessing. Van Morrison is getting ready to release some anti-lockdown songs. They're called Born Free, As I Walked Out, and No More Lockdown. Northern Ireland's health minister, however, has a different name for them. Robin Swan told the BBC that the songs are just plain dangerous. This is not Van Morrison's first lockdown protest. He's been campaigning for concert venues to reopen at full capacity and claims the lockdown is a threat to the future of live music. His first anti-lockdown single is out this Friday. And moving on now, Tom Hanks is known for sending unexpected gifts around the world. The latest person to get his attention is a man from Saskatoon. Tom Chalosky is one of the last people in North America who knows how to repair typewriters. Tom Hanks is a huge typewriter enthusiast. Most recently, the two Toms started exchanging letters. And then last week, Tom Chalosky received a package. It was a 1940s noiseless typewriter from Tom Hanks. Tom Chalosky says he's honored to own it and that he's already used it several times. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. This week on the show, you're going to hear a special series of interviews. We'll be talking to five different artists whose work is helping to bring people together during challenging times. And the next conversation you're about to hear is the first one in that series. So let me tell you about this guy. Some artists prefer to work all alone with no outside help, locked away in a shadowy attic, tinkering with a new masterpiece with just a dirty smock for company. But Rafael Lozano Hammer is a natural collaborator. He's a Mexican-Canadian artist, and he makes these big interactive art installations that depend on other people. So if visitors aren't there to walk around, to speak, to participate, like right now, well, the art just doesn't happen. That's because the whole point is to connect people by giving them a shared experience. And as I mentioned, lately that hasn't been easy. Raphael has given a lot of thought to what connection looks like in the age of physical distancing. And he's coming up with a really interesting answer. Cercanía is a Spanish word that roughly translates to mean closeness. And it's also the name of Raphael's new exhibition. Cercanía is running now at the Arsenal Contemporary Art Gallery in Montreal. 
You got to hear about this thing. That's where I reached him. Lovely to see you. How are you? Hi, Tom. I'm doing all right. I'm Thanks glad, for having me. I'm glad you're doing all right. Now, I, I want to talk about your work, but first I want to talk a little bit about you. I heard that your parents owned nightclubs. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, in Mexico City. They had disco nightclubs, they had salsa nightclubs, and they had drag queen nightclubs. Now, were you allowed to go to these nightclubs when you were a kid? You know, I used to be super proud of this because I spent so much time in these clubs. I was seven years old and spending time with Rudy Calzado and Celia Cruz and all of the salsa stars. And now I go to psychotherapy because it's not okay to <laughs> to send your kids to the nightclubs and the discotheques. But yeah, I grew up among strobe lights and changing uh, color changing lights. And it, it I think it informs part of my of my practice. I really like to throw a good party. I that's that's kind of where I was going with it. Is that like you know so much of your work involves gathering of people and people interacting with light and people interacting with things around them. Do you see a connection there between what your parents did for a living and what you do? Totally, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of artists that work with light as a medium, but most of them have this approach that is about enlightenment and spirituality. I come from a different tradition of light. For me, the light of the discotheque is the light of disorientation, is the light that allows you to hide, to be someone other than yourself. So there's this capability that we have to go into a space that is completely different from normality, and you can interrupt your the normal way that you go about relating to others. And I think that art is a little bit like that. It's called that artifice of going into a space that is kind of changed by a bunch of effects or a bunch of projections or, or, or light beams. And it forces people to sort of reconnect with each other and to re-establish uh, uh, relationships between them. I never thought about that. The same way that when you walk into a nightclub, you feel like you can be someone else, someone else for a couple of hours. It often mimics the way I feel when I go to an art gallery. You know, I get to be a different person. <laughs> I get to be a different person than I am when I was outside. Well, I mean, I think art, art is like this kind of interruption. It's this kind of opportunity for us to think about, you know, uh, in this case, COVID or separation in a different way, right? Like it's a platform for people to come together. And as you said, that's a big part of what I do, right? Like most of my work is interactive. Uh, participation is not only invited, but but fundamental to the existence of the artwork. Like a lot of my works are activated by cameras or by sensors, by microphones that pick up the activity of the public. And then that becomes the artwork itself. So if you have no public, there's nothing to show. That's the kind of work that, that I do. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about that in the, in, the, in the world of the pandemic. But first, I guess we should talk about the show itself. It's called Cercania, right? Yeah, Cercania. It's a Spanish word that means proximity, except in Spanish, it also has something about a certain intimacy and complicity. So I like to, to keep it in Spanish just because it's missing some of that in both French and English. Can you, I mean, this is very challenging to do over the radio, but can you briefly explain to me what it is, something about it? For sure. For sure. So at the Arsenal Contemporary Space here in Montreal, uh, we decided to do a residency, an artist residency. It's an exhibition, and it's basically a 20,000 square foot space. It's really gargantuan and beautiful. And we've put, put 12 audiovisual artworks that have been chosen specifically for social distancing. So while most of them are immersive and interactive, there are no buttons, no levers, no surfaces to touch, um, no hermetically sealed chambers where people get asphyxiated. That's an artwork that I showed at the Museo d'Art Contemporain a couple of years back. I've seen that you one, yeah. That's, that seems like a good pre-COVID yeah. exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not a good artwork for where we are at right now. So we chose those for, for social distancing, but then the subjects and the, and, the, and, the, and the material itself that we have is like, for example, there's an experience where people's shadows um, are tracked and overlapped. So even though you're keeping social distancing, there's this constant sort of uh, overlap between two people or we're mixing people's portraits together. Or in another artwork, we extract their heartbeat with a camera, a thing called photoplethysmography. And so we extract your heartbeat just by looking at you. And then we send you to a three-dimensional artwork, which is online. And in fact, anybody from anywhere in Canada or the world can participate. It's called unpulse.net. And if you go there, the camera from your phone or your laptop takes your heartbeat and it adds it to this database of other heartbeats that are live in the piece. And then you can chat with one another with a representation of this kind of, you know, vital signs of all of us joining into this virtual shared space. You know, so, so something techniques. that seems more and more important as we, as we seem very far away from, from one another. 
Exactly, exactly. So it's an approach for interactive art. It's not common that there is this kind of don't touch, don't, uh, it's all just camera based, but I think it's going to work because of that. Uh, I want to talk about the heartbeat in just a second, but but I kind of want to talk about it in the grand scheme of a couple of things in this show. I was wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about the, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, the paradolium. It's this big yeah. circular drum that audiences will walk up to. Can you explain that to me? For sure. So that's a fountain that is basically like a water basin and you go down and you look at it. And as you do, there's a little camera that does face detection. So the computer basically sees your face and then it actuates, it activates uh, hundreds of ultrasonic atomizers, um, which convert the cold water into plumes of vapor. So for a brief second, um, your face, your likeness gets appears in this cloud of artificial vapor in the water, and then it ephemeral, it, it, it disappears after a second or two. So pareidolia is the capacity, the capacity for our brains to see faces like in clouds mm. or in burnt toasts or whatever. So we take the phenomenon of pareidolia and we create it in a fountain so that your likeness is created with this water vapor. It reminds me of the story of, of like Narcissus, right? Go looking into the looking into the water. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's kind of and it also makes tangible the atmosphere, right? So a lot of my work lately is about how do we, you know, sort of relate to our atmosphere, which is our biosphere, and in terms of environment is important. But at a time, for example, where Right now, the atmosphere is trying to kill us through COVID or through climate change or the accumulation of carbon dioxide. We live in an unprecedented 422 parts per million of carbon dioxide. No human ever had ever lived under so much carbon dioxide. So the idea that the atmosphere is is beautiful and it communicates our thoughts and our songs, but it also has all of this... Um, you know, sort of um, issues that we need to be aware of. So for me, to work with vapor, to work with the atmosphere, it's a way to make tangible the medium through which we live, you know. And in this case, it's, it's a very temporary likeness of, of the person looking at the, at the fountain. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Rafael Lozana Hemmer. He's an artist who makes big interactive installations that pe- bring people together. His latest exhibition in Montreal is called Circania. So we've talked about... Um, you know, water vapor, we've talked about transmitting heartbeats to one another. And and we talked, we kind of hinted earlier at your piece about getting into a, a room and, and, you know, breathing other people's air and asphyxiation and all that. <laughs> Are you ever surprised that people agree to interact with these things? <laughs> Definitely with the, with the asphyxiation chamber, because basically that's like a hermetically sealed glass room where you're invited to breathe the air that has been breathed by everybody before you. And there's like massive warnings. Like it says, warning for asphyxiation. You only have like 10 minutes of oxygen. Warning for contagion. There's no filters. You're sharing viruses, bacteria, pheromones, everything. Another one is a warning for panic, because in order to get in and out, you need to go through a decompression chamber. So when I made this work, I thought, you know what? No one's going to go in this, but it's kind of like an aquarium. It's kind of like an experiment. I'm okay if no one goes in. And when we showed it here at the Musée d'Art Contemporain, and we're, uh, we've shown it in about five different countries, there's a lineup and everybody wants to go to, to feel what it is to breathe this recycled toxic air. And I think that that's really interesting because in the end, oftentimes when we hear about participation and new media and so on, everybody's talking about, oh, you'll participate, you're, you have agency, you have the power and so on. But in this piece, if you participate too much, you die. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a perversion of the concept of participation as something that is necessarily positive. And crucially, if you're in that work, you make it, make it more toxic for future participants. I should clarify that this piece is, on, you know, not on view. It's supposed to yeah. be on view in the SF. I, I, I guess the reason it's I'm interested, but the reason I, I, I bring it up is that all those things I mentioned, sharing your heartbeat, uploading your heartbeat online and sharing it with, with other people, you know, stepping into a room where you're asphyxiated, um, it takes a certain level of discomfort. And I'm wondering, you as an artist, like, what do you get out of making people uncomfortable like this? It seems like you're very comfortable with it. Well, it's kind of like there's a, a Zapatista slogan back the Mexican activists. They used to say, you know, we're not asking you guys to dream. We're asking you to wake up. And I think that art is a little bit like that, right? So there, you, there is a place for art to to be oniric and beautiful and it kind of interrupts your concerns and it gives you something like uh, um, 
Matisse used to call it it's a comfortable chair where you can sit on. But then there's also a role for art to be activists, right? To work, to ask certain critical questions about the moment that we live in. There's an artwork at this at the at the show Cercania, which is basically an upside down noose, which works as a metronome. And it's this noose um, moves every 10 seconds, which is approximately every time that someone in North America gets shot by a gun. So for me, the discomfort is a part of, of, of Brian Eno used to say that in a perfume, you always have to have like a pungent smell because that's the one that captures your attention. If it's all sweet and fruity, it's not going to be a good perfume. A good perfume has to have a little bit of a, a punch. Isn't that interesting, though, that Eno ended up making such ambient music, you know, ended up making this music that was that was was played in sort of the background you were supposed to ignore. And yet he was so fo- focused on getting your attention. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about Circania, but I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about this piece you did a little while ago that really got my attention. and I think a lot of people's attention, too, which was Border Tuner, which was on the, uh, a part of the border between the United States and Mexico. Um, could, could you tell us a little bit about that? For sure. So um, between El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, this is a sister cities that have been together as a single community for hundreds of years. Even before the United States existed, Ciudad Juarez and El Paso were one single city. And right now, they're actually the world's um, largest binational metropolis, at least on the Western Hemisphere. And so you have um, people who have coexisted for a long time, um, which have family on both sides. And now you get to a point where there's a very adversarial nationalist narrative of building borders and walls and, and Mexicans are rapists and, you know, they're dogs and they should be shot in the legs. I'm just quoting the president of the United States. And under this kind of duress, under this kind of adversarial regime, when we think about the border, we think of it as a very scary place. And yet, when you look at El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, this is a very integrated community um, that has an interdependence. They have relationships that are economic, uh, historical, environmental, social. So what I wanted to do is, how do we make an artwork that um, completely forgets about this division and creates uh, a way to connect people from, from both sides. And the idea is to not so much create bridges between the two cities, but just to highlight that those bridges exist. So we put this massive searchlights of the kind that you find at a rock concert or a, at the Olympics um, to create bridges of light in between participants on both sides of the border. And there was actually six stations, interactive stations. You would get to a station and, and turn a little wheel like a dial. And as you did, the searchlights would scan the horizon. And when my lights and your lights intersected in midair, the computer would know it and automatically would open up a channel of, of bi-directional communication. So now I could speak to you, you could hear me, and I could hear you. And if I didn't like what you said, I would just tune, <laughs> to, tune you out and look for somebody else. Um, Tom, it was incredible. It was uh, it was a parade of people over 12 nights in November who would show up and do, I, I call it a really bipolar project, because sometimes you'd have like people, families, for example, who were being reunited through the piece. So it was super emotional. Other times you'd have like people flirting with each other or serenading each yeah, other. Yeah, the flirting yeah. one caught me off guard, you know, like when I found <laughs> out that people were fl- flirting across the border with one another. I, I, that, that's it was me. really great. And they were, because you don't see the other person, you just hear their voice. So this, usually there's like, well, how old are you? And so on. And what's your Facebook? And then it's like, why don't you come to Mexico? It's like, well, I'm afraid. And then she would say, well, you know, I if I, if I take you around Mexico, maybe you would like it. Yeah. And then she asks him, are you handsome? And so it was just really fun. But but then the, the grooming parts, like we had indigenous communities, for example, right? So we think of the border as English and Spanish, but there's the Ende families, the Tigua, the, the people who have been there for thousands of years and their voices were being spoken. Or we had refugees. Or for example, one time we had a guy who was actually a U.S. veteran of war the Vietnam War, and he had been deported to Mexico. And so it's just this array of um, of social and and not just sad stories. We had like uh, a lot of poets. We had a lot of historians. We had LGBTQ night with an incredible wrestler. His name is Cassandro El Exotico. You know how in Mexico our wrestlers are always have a theme? Mm-hmm. His theme is drag queen. Right. So it's a drag queen wrestler. And he's talking to another wrestler on the Mexico side who's a German wrestler. And she says, you know, I'm here to tell you I'm from Berlin. I'm here to tell you that 
walls come down mm. and it was just like people you know applauding on both sides it was just so beautiful i i uh, i loved it we are talking over zoom right now during this pandemic so many people have been using technology to communicate with one another to talk to friends and family back home and uh, speaking personally and i can speak for a lot of people also renegotiating our relationship with technology. I've tried to spend a little bit less time on my phone, a little bit less time on social media. So as someone who so many of the opportunities you create, so much of the artwork you create is made possible through technology, what are your thoughts on that, on the drawbacks of technology to connect or perhaps the advantages of it? Well, I mean, I always say that I work with technology not because it's new or original or futuristic or cutting edge. I work with technology because it's inevitable part of our society, right? So when you look at your your economics, for example, where most economic transactions today are made between machines through globalized networks of communication. If you look at communication, right, like most of our communication, especially during the pandemic, is happening through media such as just a phone or, or Zoom or whatever medium. Uh, if you look at relationships, if you look at politics and how elections get controlled by social media, you realize that in order to speak about our contemporary moment, you really don't have an option because we live in a culture of technology. I'm a Mexican, but I studied in Canada. And in Canada, there is that lesson of Marshall McLuhan, that technology is a second skin. It's not a tool. It's not something that's optional. It's something that forms part of ourselves. So to investigate with technology means to investigate ourselves. Uh, last question on that. I was going into this thinking the idea of art building bridges. And one thing you said earlier that really caught me, you said, I don't feel necessarily like I'm building bridges. I'm paraphrasing you. But, um, yeah. but I feel like I'm po pointing out bridges that are already there. And I think something that's coming out of this pandemic okay. and this moment of uprising is that perhaps there are, more, there are more connections than we are led to believe by corporations. Perhaps there just are more bridges that we're more aware of. So just finally, can you talk to me a little bit about art's ability to build bridges or to highlight bridges that are already there. Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest ones, and perhaps the one that is not easy to quantify or to commodify, is mourning, right? So art is really good to observe a solemn moment of coming together in the at a moment of, of loss, which undoubtedly the pandemic is. So mourning is not something that you can profit from. It's something that is evoked, best evoked by poetry, by dance, by music, by, by presence. And I think that ritual and the ritual of coming together is healing. And this healing is not about communication. It's about communion. It's about how do we share, and not religious communion, just like normal human pack animal, how do we re-enter our groups and, and, and address our losses? And then, so that's on the one hand, the, the, the idea of mourning. And the other one is in terms of, of continuity, right? Like um, to understand an artwork that has a life after you're gone, like you leave a record of yourself mm. and then this piece will, will remember you. And in that memory, there's something about a validation of our existence and a reminder that we're here only for a brief moment, right? Like um, they call it in Latin, memento mori, right? Remember that you're going to die. And I, as a Mexican, perhaps this sounds a little bit stereotypical, but I think about death a lot. Mm. Um, in my in the in a recent article in the New York Times, they called me the death loving crowd pleaser, <laughs> and I like that a lot because it is. It's, on the one hand, I want the public to get something out of these shows. On the other hand, I do want them to reflect on you know how ephemeral it all is. I'm a scientist originally, so I'm not a religious person, but to me. Art, some people complain, well, art is the new religion. It's not so much that. What is the new religion is complicity. What is the new religion is looking at another person's eyes and feeling a sense of empathy and connection. I think that we can build something on that. And it's not necessarily humanist because it's also understanding that the issues are much bigger than mm -hmm. just relationships between two people. This has been a fascinating conversation. I, uh, I love talking to you. Raphael, thanks so much for your time. All right. Take it easy. Rafael Lozana Hemmer is an artist who makes big audience participation style art installations. Rafael Lozano Hemmer's new physically distanced exhibition is called Circania. It's uh, at the Arsenal Contemporary Art Gallery in Montreal, and it's running until October 24th, Circania. I also I want to be upfront about something that has to do with this interview and, you know, about a few of the others you'll be hearing on the show this week. A little while back, we partnered with a multimedia project called We Are Not Divided, or 
wand. And it looks at the way artists are finding ways to bridge political and social divides in their work. The guy at the center of this project is David Byrne, the frontman of the band Talking Heads. So basically, we produced five interviews with five different artists whose work falls under that theme of connecting people. And the idea was that wand would help amplify Q's stories to a bigger audience through their media networks. And we were going to call our series on Q, We Are Not Divided, to mirror David Byrne multimedia project. The conversation you just heard with Rafael Lozano Hammer is one of the interviews that was meant to be part of that series. So right as we were getting these stories and interviews together, some news broke about David Byrne. We learned about a video that surfaced from the 80s where David Byrne was doing impersonations wearing black and brown face, something he addressed in an interview right here on Q earlier this month. We decided to reevaluate our partnership with the WAN team, and ultimately, we decided to back away from it right now on account of David Byrne's blackface incident. The thing is, we still wanted you to hear these incredible five interviews with artists, which we're really excited about. We've got really cool new web features about them, too. And we've renamed the whole thing Art Connects about the connections that art can make with one another. And we'll still be bringing you those stories over the course of this week. Only now the series lives under that new name and a name that's only ours. We'll tweet out a link to the web stuff on our Twitter page. It is absolutely beautiful web design. We're at CBC Radio Q. Jude Law's new movie, The Nest, begins with what seems like a simple decision. His character, Rory, this charming but kind of reckless financial genius, tells his wife he wants to move their family from New York back to England, where he's from. Not only that, he's found them this old manor house in the countryside. It's got a stable for horses. Led Zeppelin used to live there. So they make the move. They settle into a lifestyle that's a little beyond their means. And that's when things start to unravel. You start to wonder while you're watching this movie, are you watching like a domestic drama or are you watching a horror movie? Because the film starts to morph into a little bit of both. The Nest is exactly the type of movie Jude Law does best. A story that doesn't really stick to one genre. Like when he plays a possible sociopath in HBO's The Young Pope and The New Pope. He returns to HBO this fall with The Third Day, another dark tale about a secluded island. Sean Durkin is the Canadian director behind The Nest. You might remember his thriller Martha Marcy May Marlene from back in 2011. The Nest is in theaters now. Here's my conversation with Jude Law. Hi. Thanks for having me. Critics are calling The Nest one of the best pieces of work in your entire career. I'm wondering, what was the most intriguing thing about this project to you? What made you want to make this movie? Well, first of all, I really wanted to work with Sean Durkin. I I had admired his work, and um, he had taken quite some time to finish this and to, uh, you know, get his uh, get everything in in order to to make another film. So I was intrigued to know what that film was going to be, and the script had, for my taste, a very unique perspective on family life, and. It really felt genuine, heartfelt, but complicated and intense. I loved the relationship between Rory, my character, and Alison, his wife. And amidst this uh, kind of emotional turmoil, there was this wonderful sense of hope. Um, I love the way he set it or placed it in 1986 as a sort of reminder of... uh, habits that we perhaps forged back then that we still uh, 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 live under now, which is this sense of, you know, better, bigger, brighter, more expensive, and a lifestyle that reflects all of that is a good lifestyle as opposed to perhaps looking within. And um, I I also like the challenge ultimately of Rory. There were elements to Rory, I don't want to give too much away, but that on the page were quite, not horrific, but, you know, extreme. And I thought, gosh, can I make this guy attractive? Can I make, can you, can I, can I, can I make an audience understand why a woman would follow him and love him and why a family would believe in him and why his employers would, would buy, buy his, uh, visions, if you like. And, um, and and for the for the drama to then, if you like, unpeel the truths. So there was a lot going on, and, and that's what really draw, always draws me to characters in the part. And that's a great point. I mean, the point is is that this guy Rory, he's this ambitious entrepreneur. He moves to the U.S. from England with his wife. 
he moves back with his wife and, and children. And you're right. He's not he's not a villain. Like it's I can only imagine that's a complicated thing to act is this guy is doing some horrible things, but you end up sort yeah. of rooting for him, you know? I remember early on, Sean and I had a conversation and it was important for Sean to iterate that, that, you know, everything he does in a way is for love. Now, you know, everything he does is for what he believes and what he's been taught or the way he's reacted to his past as, a, as an expression of, look, this is the best thing for you. And in a way, the drama well, the, 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 of this, this period of his life that you get to see is him recognizing that, that, that sometimes, you know, you have to engage the other person. Sometimes the answer is not the most expensive answer. It's not the biggest answer. Um, he's also someone, you know, he's, I, I love characters that are contradictory. I love that he's got a sort of brilliant side and clearly a visionary side. He sees things and talks about things. Uh, and Sean put in great detail that he projects what's going to happen economically in London. And in fact, he's right. Whether whether he's then successful on the back of that, I won't I won't spoil the film. But you know, the truth is, he he sees something happening, and so you've got to admire him for that. But but the way he goes about it um, is is possibly his downfall. But going back to the family, to me, what I love most is that, that you know, as with most families, if it's a, if it's a metaphor for, for all of us and, and our lives together in, in our own nests, then it's, it's about the daily struggle. It's about the fact that, you know, we, we are in these families for the fight in a way. We're in these families just to figure them out, make them work and understand each other and go through revelations. This film is set in the Reagan years, in, in the mid-'80s, and a big part of the story is the cultural differences between Americans and Brits at that time, the differences between us and, and them, and, or maybe the lack of differences between our generation now and the generation then. There's a certain glamour about your character after he's been in the States for a decade, or at least that's sort of how he tries to portray himself. That's right. What do you remember about how you perceived America and Americans when you were a kid in the 80s in the UK when this film was set? Well, before we became a sort of 24-7 global community, before connection with America became, there was, there was always, it became um, immediate. There was always a sense of awe, really, as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s. From my perspective, um, they got everything first, uh, apparently, and, you know, everything I saw on TV, which was this constant feed of, you know, uh, exciting life and uh, and, uh, and bigger and bolder characters and a world that was sort of familiar but always slightly more glamorous, you know, whether it was the way they sold stuff or the stuff you saw in movies and on TV shows. Um, I was always slightly, uh, uh, you know, starstruck, I suppose, by mm-hmm. it. Um, and um, that's definitely something that, Rory brings back with him and enjoys reveling in the sort of glow of as the kind of prodigal son returning, the, the conquering hero. Um, and uh, I think that, that that happened quite a lot. You know, I mean, they, they as I said, they seemed like they were ahead and therefore people from the UK who were working over there who came back felt like they were coming from the future and could foresee the way Britain was going to go. And in many ways, they were right. I mean, I always think of us, certainly uh, through the 80s, as, as a, and I think, I think Thatcher wanted it this way, but we look like a country that we're trying to keep up and trying to mimic America. And there, there are huge similarities now. Obviously, there are deep, deep-rooted cultural differences in our history um, is present in those differences. But, but on the surface, culturally, we're very, very similar now. Did, did people's perceptions of you change back in the UK when you achieved great success in the States? That's an interesting question. Um, possibly. Possibly, yeah. I, I suppose in my industry, which is a, a direct reflection in a way of the film, you know, if, if something makes money and something is, is, is con- considered a financial success, then you're considered a success or you're considered... Um, that, that you know you've done something great, and and so if you're a part of a, a big American film or a big American franchise, it, you know involves you, then 
yeah, you can you could be seen back here as 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 I as I've, I think I've already said, like you know, your local boy does good yeah. and returns. Um, but I would also say there's a there's a there's a there's a relationship here with with uh, the media where people also like to pull you down. Mm. Um, and sometimes they they call it reality checks, and sometimes it's just called you know I don't know cutting the. Uh, the tall poppy, I suppose. You know, it's interesting to look at this role in the trajectory of your career, and I feel like you're at a stage now in your success, speaking of your success, that you can kind of take on um, more nuanced roles, perhaps roles you weren't um, able to take on at the beginning of your career or not. But I, I am interested in what guides you, be it this this role in the nest or, you know, you look at the young pope and the new pope and the third day. These are roles that are getting a lot of attention. These are quite cerebral. They're quite tense. I'm I'm just curious as an actor outside of like you know the script or the director but in terms of the character what guides you what are you looking for in a character for you to to want to take it on It's hard to separate that decision from the director and the script and what have you um because I think if you're in the right hands of and a director that you trust uh, and their a vision that you've seen of theirs tried and tested in a world you know they create worlds that you want to be in then sometimes i'm willing to go something i used to say is i didn't like repeating myself i don't want to play a part that i played before and that's still kind of true i like treading new territory and i like being slightly scared by um the, the prospect of treading new territory uh but that's always if i'm in the right hands um I suppose what I like, I like, well, I think I've already said I like challenge. I suppose that's something that, that turns me on. It gives me, a, you know, the sense of fear and can I do this? And uh, the, the battle that then ensues in my own head and my own heart is something that, that still motivates me. Um, and uh, I suppose interesting to reflect on what you said about my career. I mean, I've always felt, I, I've never felt like I've been through a particular period where I've, I don't know, gone for the easy option. I've no. certainly gone for options in the past where I, no, no, but, but but I think what you said is true, but that's perhaps more reflective of just the parts you get off of when you get older. I think it's natural that, you know, in your 20s, you're offered people who are 20 yeah. and they're not always as complicated or as, or as, or as, or as rich, you know, and in your 30s, maybe the same. And I certainly felt, that since I turned 40, which is seven years ago, that the the people I, I get asked to to play are being at the same point in my life. You know, there, there are layers to them. They've lived a little more and they're coming through something or out of something and or they, they have children and so they have that added, you know, uh, layer of responsibility or um, uh, drama. The Nest is shot in this sort of terrifying old country house and i have to say i felt yeah. sort of uh, uncomfortable even watching you be in it Good. can you tell me a story about it being a bit creepy to be in there um i don't really get creeped out i know that the kids <laughs> were terrified really the kids were yeah they really hated filming in that house poor but but you know here's the thing i'm glad you say that about it because Sean, our director, talks a lot about his influences as a child watching films and films like Rosemary's Baby, The Shining, uh, Exorcist, you know, dark films were, were very influential. And when I read the script, other than all the scenes that I've discussed already about family and Rory's journey and what have you in the eighties, it was written like a kind of gothic horror and the house on the, on the page took on this terrifying, almost like living breathing organism that was like devouring this family. And there was a lot more reference to doors opening, slamming, windows rattling, and so on, which I love. And slowly, and he did the same, I believe, on his other work, slowly as we were making it, slowly as he was editing it and finessing it, you know, the the, the sort of um, filmed uh, uh, language of, uh, of, of gothic horror slowly sort of dissolved. And it's there to a degree, but only to under, underline, in a way, the intensity and the emotion of the family, which I think is a brilliant way to approach it. So it's present in the DNA of the story of the mm. film, but it's not a horror film. Um, but, there, yeah, it's, in fact, to be honest, we took over this wonderful home uh, that this charming family lived in, and we, we cleared everything out and made it, <laughs> sort of lit it, in as creepy a way as possible. So an awful lot of that 
was us and just clever filmmaking. In the, in the last minute we have left here, I wanted to congratulate you. I understand your, your sixth child was born not that long ago. So what's it like yeah, be, being, being a, a father in, during the pandemic? Well, it brought a whole, a whole lot of life and love to, to, the, to the house, you know, when uh, we could have otherwise been sat around stewing, I suppose. <laughs> I think for all of us, it's been a time to count our blessings and uh, recognize the good fortunes we have or the good fortunes that we wish we had. And we certainly as a family were felt very, very fortunate. You know, we're able to nest. Oh, there you go. There's a good plug. We were able to nest <laughs> and without any distraction. Um, you know, and uh, that was that was extraordinary. Every everyone was at home, and everyone was there to receive the baby. So it was it was pretty wonderful. Uh, it sounds like it. Congratulations on the film, Jude, and thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Jude Law stars in the new film The Nest, which is playing in theaters now. That's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Long Long will be here to talk about why he spent a lifetime preparing to play Bach's Goldberg Variations. All right, we'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.